Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Wednesday, January 31st. Today, Colorado Sun political reporters Sandra Fish and Jesse Paul talk about the first Republican primary debate in the 4th Congressional District, where Lauren Boebert is now running for re-election. Before we begin, the Colorado Sun invites you to meet the politics team at an unaffiliated networking event held at the Denver Press Club. The event is sponsored by Aponte & Busam Public Affairs Consultants. There will be a cash bar, it's free to join, and you'll have time to chat with staff and readers. Join us on February 29th and RSVP today by visiting coloradosun.com events. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this date in 1992, Denver's landmark Tivoli Union Brewery began its transition into a college student center. Founded in 1866 by German immigrant Moritz Siege, it underwent several ownership changes and expansions, becoming a focal point of Denver's German community. Renamed Tivoli after the famed Danish amusement park, it thrived as a brewery, surviving prohibition and competition with Zangs and Coors. However, a 1965 flood and labor disputes led to its closure in 1969. Despite the surrounding Auraria neighborhood's demolition, the brewery remained. After years of underuse, it was reinvented in the 1990s as a mixed-use academic and commercial facility, serving three Denver colleges. In 2015, Metropolitan State University launched a brewing program, resurrecting Tivoli beer production on the site once again. Before we continue, a special thank you to all our Colorado Sun members listening. It's thanks to you that The Sun continues to bring trustworthy, independent journalism to readers and listeners across our state. If you're not yet a member and want to join us, visit coloradosun.com join to sign up. While you're there, check out our member e-newsletters like Colorado Sunday, The Temperature, and more. Together, we'll keep Colorado informed in 2024. Next, our feature story. Hello, Daily Sun Up listeners. It's great to be here today on Wednesday, January 31st, last day of the month. I'm Sandra Fish from the Colorado Sun's politics team, and I'm here with Jesse Paul, our fearless leader of the politics team. Hi, Jesse. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm at a phone booth at the Colorado Capitol, so I'm as good as I possibly could be. It's about the only quiet place you can find in this building. They have phone booths there? They have these old phone booths around the Capitol that you can cut a duck into to have a private conversation, and they're, it's an interesting relic, relic from the past. That is interesting. So let's move on. You're in the Capitol. Let's talk a little politics here. You went to northern Colorado, northeastern Colorado, last Thursday night for a couple of the first congressional debates of this season. For Republicans in the 4th Congressional District, where Ken Buck is resigning his seat, and in the 8th Congressional District, where a couple people are hoping to take on Democratic Representative Yadira Carabeo. But what drew the most attention was definitely that primary for the 4th. Set that up for us about what's going on there. Sure. So most people probably know by now that that race has picked up a lot of national attention because U.S. Rep. Lauren Boebert has decided to move from her third congressional district uh, re-election bid over to the fourth district on the eastern part of the state from the western part to the eastern part to 
basically improve her re-election chances. She was facing a really difficult re-election bid in the 3rd District. It was unclear if she was going to be able to win, whereas the 4th Congressional District is the most Republican congressional district in the state. So if she is the party's nominee and she faces eight, nine different Republican challengers, she's basically a shoe-in to win in November. So it's a much safer district for her. It's one political risk being traded for a different one. I watched that online, and one of the things that struck me as it started was this was the really the first time she's had to face other Republican opponents in this sort of setting. And there were eight other Republicans there along with her. Talk a little bit about the things that she said and how she performed. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, right? I mean, Lauren Boebert, in a way, has kind of run, had a semi-charm political uh, life so far. She removed or, or unseated Scott Tipton in 2020 in the Republican primary in the third district, and then basically has had smooth sailing up until last year where she had that, you know, close shave against Democrat Adam Frisch. But, you know, having eight or nine Republican opponents in a district that's unfamiliar with her, where she's going to have to try and convince voters, it, it, it presents new challenges. And when she walked into the room, she was carrying her grandson. I could see, I could tell at least it appeared that she was quite uncomfortable. You know, it was a space where there's a lot of folks who are skeptical of her and her decision. A lot of allies of the other candidates in the race were in this debate stage. And I think we expected her to be attacked by these other candidates. And I think that's kind of what happened. Most of the night, if you listen back to the debate, there were some policy discussions, but I think the undertone or overtone, um, the tone of the debate was really Lauren Boeber. What's she doing here? You know, Tell us about some of these other candidates. Clearly, Ken Buck got out of the race, decided he was going to run again back in November. And a lot of those candidates have lived in the district a long time and have significant political experience. Definitely. The 4th Congressional District, like I mentioned, is the most Republican-leaning congressional district in the state. So there were a lot of people kind of waiting for Ken Buck to step aside and hoping to fill his shoes. So just thinking like left to right on the de- debate stage, not politically, just where folks were sitting. You know, Lauren Boebert got chair number one, and then next to her was, uh, very close to her, was State Representative Mike Lynch, one of her challengers, then Deborah Flora, conservative talk radio host from Douglas County. Then you had Jerry Sonnenberg, a former state senator from Northeast Colorado, Ted Harvey, a former state senator from Douglas County, and then State Representative Richard Holter. If I'm leaving a few people out there, but those are kind of the big candidates that she that she faced. And all of them at some point or the other, uh, with maybe one exception, maybe Holtorf didn't quite take the bait, either overtly or kind of just really attacked her or tried to ask her a question or put her on the spot and, and draw contest, contrast with her during the debate. It was interesting. I believe that Mike Lynch actually basically used the term carpetbagger, didn't he? Yeah. So that was probably the most pointed part of the night. Lauren Boebert, in a lot of ways, stayed away from attacking her opponents and kind of tried to redirect attacks toward people um, who are, are maybe less likely to to be on the ballot in June for the Republican primary. But at one point, she kind of took a dig at Lynch, who's on probation for DUI arrest in 2022, and said, hey, I hope you get your gun rights back, sir. And it was kind of a backhanded uh, show of support. And Mike Lynch didn't take too too liking to that. And so what he had an opportunity to ask 
another question. He just flat out asked Lauren Bober, can you provide the definition of carbon bagger? So I'd like to ask her just a really simple question. And that is, uh, could you like give the definition of carpet bagger to me? And she had kind of a stunned look on her face and then tried to explain her move through the context of her sons, her four sons, her grandchild, and her pretty contentious divorce that she's going through with her ex-husband, who was recently charged in a couple of domestic violence incidents. Is this is this a Mary Poppins question? <laughs> um, so, yes, I have moved into the fourth district. My boys and I needed a fresh start. That's been very public of what the home life looked like. And I'm sorry to bring that up. I've tried to put it into a very pretty package and bring my ex-husband lots of honor. Um, but since there is nothing private about my personal life, it is out there. And my boys need some freedom from what has been going on. And this move is the right move for me and for them. She said, look, we needed a fresh start. We needed to get away. She didn't really focus on the political advantage for herself, even though it's clearly there. We know that that was a driving factor in her move. There's something she talked about in the video announcing it. And we kind of tried to press her a little bit on like, well, what do you, you talk a little bit more about this, this move and why you need to go to the fourth district, your explanation here. I'll, I'll mention that the third congressional district is so large that she could have moved within the district and been further road miles away from from her ex-husband than where she is now. So that, that argument, I think, is a little bit dubious. And we'll see. I, I think it'll probably be picked apart on the campaign trails as the race goes on. As a viewer, listener, that Mike Lynch DUI brought up another question that just seemed to me to be kind of one of the more amazing moments of that debate. Tell us about it. Sure. So the moderators did ask the folks on stage to raise their hand if they had been arrested before. And I think five or six of the candidates did. I'll mention that there are different levels of arrest on there, right? I mean, Jerry Sonneberg had been arrested for speeding in California and not had enough money to pay his bail. And Ted Harvey had said that he was arrested as a teenager for crossing a white road. Rachel Holtorf said he was arrested decades ago for bar fights. Um, we know Lauren Bobert's arrest record. You can kind of Google that and figure it out. Obviously, Lynch had his DUI. And then one other candidate up there who was kind of like a second tier candidate in terms of his competitiveness, Trent Lisey, has had um, a, a pretty well-documented arrest record. He's a member of the Weld County Council. So there was a lot of hay made of that moment, but I think reality was kind of a, you know, if you were in the room, it felt a little different than maybe it did if you were watching at home. Um, you know, I, I think nobody's perfect. If you talk, about, talk to candidates across uh, the state and to different offices, maybe you dig something up from the past. But in, in a way, I think it provided some cover for people like Mike Lynch and Lauren Boebert, who have more recent run-ins with law enforcement, maybe a little bit more serious charges that they face. And those got kind of washed away or downplayed by the other folks who raised their hand and, and you know, or haven't been arrested in decades. And, and the things they were arrested for were pretty, I would argue, non-controversial. Yeah, that's a really good point there. And, you know, much has been made of Mike Lynch's DUI re arrest in 2022, which people only found out about this month. And which he got while he was serving in office. I think that's important to point out, too. These people talked about the issues, presumably, and did you see any big areas where one person stood out or another? All the candidates really agreed that immigration is kind of the top issue in this race and the top issue facing Congress. There was some daylight between the different candidates in terms of what should happen to people who are already in the U.S. and living here unlawfully. Should they be deported? Should they, give them, they be given a pathway to citizenship? 
And then on the abortion question, there was some debate around whether or not there should be a federal ban on abortion or it should be left up to the states. In the unaffiliated newsletter on Tuesday, you can check out kind of where where the lines were broken on on those different issues. But this is going to be a race that I think really boils down to personality more than policy. These are very conservative folks running in a very conservative district, and, and they're not pitching themselves to voters so much on the sense of, you know, this person's more liberal than me. This person's, you know, has this one little difference. It's where I live. How long have I been in the district? Who do I know? How am I going to, you know, be a representative? Am I going to be a bully in Congress? Am I going to be uh, more passive? Am I going to work with Democrats? Am I not? Less so the questions of like, you know, which bills am I going to vote for or not? Because I think the folks are are pretty aligned on, on those matters. Yeah, this is going to be just an interesting primary season. This is one of three open Republican seats in Colorado where there's just a ton of candidates vying for the nomination. And, you know, a lot of these people have actually filed a petition onto the ballot, including Lauren Boebert. And we're going to be looking at a lot more of this as we approach the June 25th primary. I understand there there was there was a straw poll on this of the people who were in the room, which actually wasn't in the fourth district. It was in the eighth. But but talk a little bit about that and what you expect to see happen next year. Sure. So there was a lot of focus after the debate on the results of this straw poll. And, and I'll, I guess I'll just start out with what the results were. Jerry Sonnenberg came in first place and then down the line um, in order. I'm, I'm going to try and get it right. I'm so speaking from memory, but Mike Lynch, uh, Deborah Flora, Richard Holtorf, and then in fifth place was Lauren Boebert. And a lot of people saw that as a sign that maybe she's in a pretty weak position as this campaign kind of heats up in the Ford District. I would really caution against taking any kind of information out of the straw poll. As a rule, straw polls are notoriously unreliable. And like you mentioned, this debate wasn't even held in the district. The people in the room in large part were family and friends and campaign staff of the candidates. Lauren Boebert had a few of those. The straw poll in terms of who filled it out was not closely watched. A lot of people were leaving after four hours of being in a, a recreation center in Fort Lupton. I was pretty eager to get out of there myself. There were journalists in the room who were told to cast straw poll ballots. I'll say I did not cast one. So to glean any information off of this straw poll, I think, is a really big mistake. This is early on in the in the race, and there's a reason why the other candidates were attacking Lauren Boebert. Conventional wisdom says that, that because of her name ID, she's a, a member of Congress. People know who she is. She's the leading candidate. And in a race where you've got nine candidates, effectively, there's the Boebert vote and the non-Boebert vote. And the more non-Boebert candidates there are in the race, the more likely Lauren Boebert is to win. So we know that that she's kind of coming into this thing with a major advantage just based on the fact that she's a member of Congress. She's got a lot of money. She's done this before. People know her name. Whereas these other folks, they might be important to their to their specific communities. They might be well-known in Colorado political circles. I think the average voter in the 4th Congressional District might not know who Ted Harvey or Jerry Sonnenberg or Mike Lynch are. I think it's hard enough to get people to pay attention to who their state lawmakers are, let alone you know their former state lawmakers, people who have been out of office for a few years. So don't read too much into that. I think as the as the campaign comes on, you'll start to see some polling that backs up what I just said. The fact that, you know, Lauren Boebert may not win by a majority in the district, but she could win by a plurality. She only needs a simple, uh, you know, 
to beat everybody else in the in the race to win not 51% of the vote. And so she can win with 30% of the vote if it's split eight, nine ways, depending on which of these candidates actually make the ballot. So going forward, I think what we need to all kind of keep in mind is A, that factor, and B, you know, can any of these other candidates somehow pick up a lot of money to boost their profile, run TV ads, mailers, do things to kind of counteract the way that Lauren Boebert comes in with an advantage to begin with? And secondarily, does Lauren Boebert have another unforced error? That's kind of what she's been known for during her time in Congress. And that's a real risk for a campaign. It's something that could derail that slight advantage that she does have in the district. And then also maybe consolidation of candidates. Does anyone drop out? Who doesn't make the ballot? If it's Lauren Boebert versus one other candidate, then I think maybe it becomes a much tighter race. But if it's Lauren Boebert versus three or four other candidates, she's probably the favorite to win just based on the factors that I've mentioned. So moving forward, I think, you know, her trying to boost that number, that 30% that I'm just assuming that she's going to start out with. And then other candidates trying to either tear her down or boost their own name ID. And I was a little surprised, frankly, at the debate. There was nobody who kind of tried to do something that would have really been flashy to grab the headline to, uh, you know, help themselves. And and maybe we'll start seeing that as as things roll on and people kind of realize what the political dynamics are here in this race. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch. And we're going to have a first indication on Thursday. We should have a story by mid-morning about the year-end Federal Election Commission reports, which will give us an idea of how some of these candidates who got in the race in November and December, how they did in fundraising. But it's going to be a very incomplete look because she hadn't gotten into the race by the time they started raising money. So it's we've got a long ways to go, and you should really check out the politics and government section on coloradosun.com and Sign up for the unaffiliated newsletter. Great talking with you, Jesse. Great talking with you. Thanks so much, Fish. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. A new study predicts the short grass prairies blanketing Colorado's eastern plains are much more vulnerable to drought than previously thought. Modeling by a Colorado State University professor and other researchers showed that most of the world's pastures and scrublands are likewise at risk due to changing climates. The paper appeared this month in the Journal of the Academy of Sciences. It was based on a study involving 170 researchers and co-authored by the Denver Zoo's Regional Conservation Director for Colorado. The Colorado Water Conservation Board voted this week to commit $20 million toward the purchase of Shoshone Power Plant water rights for Excel Energy. The deal carries a $98.5 million price tag, and lawmakers still must approve funding. Western Slope water leaders called the deal central to their water security in face of the Colorado River's unpredictable flows. The power plant off Interstate 70 in Glenwood Canyon has some of the oldest water rights directly on the Colorado River in Colorado. That seniority means Shoshone gets its full water supply even in times of shortage. Colorado district attorneys fear that more than 1,000 criminal convictions may have relied on dubious evidence due to anomalies discovered in DNA testing by a former Colorado Bureau of Investigation scientist. The legislature's Joint Budget Committee last week approved a $7.5 million addition to this year's state budget to deal with the immediate fallout. And budget documents show the taxpayer costs are likely to grow. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation is conducting a probe into the scope of the employees' mistakes at Colorado's request. People convicted using the dubious evidence are expected to appeal their convictions. 
For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. Hi, I'm Tamara Chung, and I write about business and technology for the Colorado Sun. A large part of my beat is the Colorado economy and covering the ups and downs of losing a job, finding a job, running a business, all that fun stuff. You'll find coverage every Saturday in What's Working, and it's free because we feel all Coloradans need to know this stuff in order to stay better informed. You know, that's how we roll here, by the way. And that's why we'd appreciate your support to help keep the Colorado Sun sustainable. If you'd like to become a member, you can just go to coloradosun.com slash join today. Thanks.